How you doing today? Awesome. I don't know why, but the bright lights hit me different today. So if I'm squinting, uh, I just like to see faces. Now I can see now my eyes have adjusted. All's good. I'm Tim. I do this here. Nice to, nice to see you. Nice to meet you. If I haven't met you, if I get to meet you afterward. Uh, but uh, we are continuing uh, on our message series, Sermon on the Mount, uh, which we took a two-week break from as we celebrated our missions efforts through our uh, Faith Promise uh, a couple of weeks, and uh, we are picking back up where we, where we left off on the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, just by way of recap, before I get into my proper int- introduction, I say proper because I have an introduction, but this is the pre-introduction so people don't feel lost. But the Sermon on the Mount is uh, the compilation of Jesus' teachings and the Gospel of Matthew that occur from chapters 5 through chapter 7. And uh, some of Jesus' most famous sayings uh, occur in his teachings on the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, we've got the Beatitudes. Uh, we've got his teaching on prayer. We have his, his sayings. You, you've heard it said or heard it written, but I say to you sayings, you know, where he, he really amplifies and amps up uh, the, the high bar that God calls us to. And so Jesus teaches... Initially, he pulls his disciples in, but there's, there's a, a crowd around that he ends up preaching to. So he's kind of got two audiences, um, one, one direct, one indirect, but he's speaking these things. And, and so these, these people that, that are either choosing to follow Jesus already or are at least considering him, they've come out to hear this person that they've heard about, uh, heard about his wonderful deeds, uh, his teachings. They've come to hear uh, this teaching from him, and he, he issues these, these hard-to-live-up-to teachings. And so, in chapter 7, Jesus concludes his teaching with a story that we're going to look at today, uh, a parable, if you will, uh, in verses 24 through 27, and we're going to get to that in just a bit, but that's a recap on the Sermon on the Mount. So I want to start today... Um, by reflecting on my time when I was 14 years old and I started to play the guitar, I want to ask you a question. Have you, have you ever learned to do anything before? Anybody? Hopefully all of you have at some point. So I'm going to tell you about my time learning guitar and throw a couple other things in here. So when I was 14 years old, I started to play the guitar. I was, uh, let's see, in middle school, somewhere in that ballpark. Does that make sense? So I'm in middle school at that point, yeah. It was later middle school years. And uh, so I started playing guitar and uh, decided that while it would be really cool to be in a rock band, you need to be able to play a few chords uh, to be able to do that. So I started taking lessons at Buddy Rogers' uh, music shop there in Cincinnati. And I had a, a teacher named Doug. And Doug was a... Doug reminded me of, of, uh, of Shaggy uh, from Scooby-Doo. He had the hair, his, and, and actually, in reality, I'm pretty sure that he had a past experience following the Grateful Dead around uh, at some point. Um, he, was your, <laughs> he was your typical 
musician guy. But he's a really, really good guitar player, and so um, I signed up, I took lessons, and the way that my, my year of guitar instruction went, it started out, I had to learn the basics. I remember the very first chord that I ever learned was the E minor, because it involved these two fingers, and it was a very simple chord, and now I think it's simple, but at the time, I realized just how complex learning to play an instrument was going to be. I had to get used to putting my fingers in the right place on the right strings, pressing them into the fretboard. I don't know if you know this, but uh, if you're like me and your, your, your pain threshold isn't as high as you'd like it to be, over time, you know, your fingers start to hurt until you build the calluses on the guitar. And not only that, not only do you have to think about what your left hand is doing, but as you're learning to play just a simple chord, you also have to learn how to use your right hand. Now, if you're left-handed, it, it, you know, switches around, but you get the point. You have to learn how to strum. You have to hit the correct strings, and sometimes you play all the strings. Sometimes you don't play all the strings, and you don't want to play the wrong strings on the wrong chord, or it doesn't sound good. And then you have to learn how to strum with a, perfect, uh, with a particular uh, tempo and timing and rhythm. And that's just to play one chord. And then you've got to start stringing those chords together. And the thing about guitar playing, as is the case really with anything, if you don't, if you don't practice perfect, you become an imperfect player. You've probably heard the saying, practice makes perfect. Here's a new one for you. Perfect practice makes perfect. Because what happens is when you're playing guitar, you're trying to learn scales or learn songs, is you develop muscle memory. And your, your ear and your head and your hands start doing the same things together in unison. And if you practice the wrong notes into your scales or into your patterns, you perfect the wrong notes along the way. Now the thing about Doug, after I got my introductory chords down is he would start to have me just bring in a song that I would want to learn. Now, back at this time, when I was at this age, uh, I didn't have an iPhone with Apple Music or Spotify. I had these things called CDs. If, if you're older, you had these things called records, maybe even 8-tracks. I had CDs in my day, just seeing so you know how both old and young I am at the same time. And I would bring... Uh, a CD in, and Doug would have this little boom box sitting there, and, and I would give him the CD, and I'd tell him what track I wanted to learn. And the very first song that I learned was a song called Plush by the 90s band Stone Temple Pilots. It was, it was the band that got me to want to play guitar in the first place. And so I've got this disc, and he goes, yes, I know it was track nine. My memory's weird. I memorize really weird details like that. It was track nine on their album core, and he plays it, and he gets five seconds into the song, and he pauses it, and then he rewinds it, and then he plays it again, and he gets five, maybe seven seconds in, and he pauses it, and he keeps doing that, and he's dug, so he's sitting there kind of eyes closed. I, I just thought he, I don't know what he was doing in his own head. No, I actually know what he was doing. He was listening to the song. And then after repeating that little five-second spot, he would then find where he needed to play it on guitar. And then he would show me what he's doing, and I had to repeat it. 
And that, that sequence of listening, applying what I heard, and then the repetition that went along was the way that I learned how to play that song. And it turned out that I wasn't just learning in that moment how to play guitar. I was learning how to learn to do something. Because it turns out that that sequence of listening, applying what you've heard, and then repeat it until it becomes natural, until it becomes muscle memory, is often how we learn to do things. Anybody in here like to watch cooking shows? That's, that's one of my wife's favorite things to watch is cooking shows. And so, uh, so we'll oftentimes watch these, these folks, you know, they come on here and they're like, hey, I can, uh, I can make this elegant meal in 15 minutes or 30 minutes. And they're sitting here and they're like, you know, I think I'm going to throw a little bit of paprika in there. And I just, you know, by the way, they've got it all pre-prepped, so don't let them fool you. But then you, you see them and they start chopping up the green onions and it's, it's like it went through a conveyor belt, it's that fast. And they didn't cut their fingers. I mean, I'm sure they had before, but they, they do that. They, they know exactly what a, I don't, do you know what a pinch of salt is? Do you know what the actual measurement is? I don't, but they do. So they just take a pinch of salt and they throw it into the pot and it comes out and it looks restaurant quality at the end. Now, when we try to mirror that 30-minute meal, it takes about two hours, all the measuring cups, all the pots and pans, splatter everywhere, and by the end of it, the meal's pretty good. But then you realize, like, your kitchen doesn't look quite as elegant as the chef that you just watched do the food. But the reality is, is that that person that just made that dish started where you are in that moment. They learned how to measure so well that they know what the measurement looks like by sight or feel. They know what a pinch of salt actually is, but they can grab it with their fingers and just toss it in. They probably did cut their fingers several times learning to cut the green onions, but they're so good at it that they can do it super fast. We actually took a cutting class one time and like learn how to do it, and I don't know that we remember how to cut properly still after that because we didn't keep the repetition going, but still, like, it's a hard skill to get down, but people that are chefs know how to do it. Or for those of you guys that are handy guys in the room, so you can laugh at me for a moment, have you ever had to patch drywall before? <laughs> yeah, there we go. Yeah, I'm not good at it. The first time, we ended up with a small hole in our wall. It was actually torn away from a puppy that we had. They do damage. I got online, I got on YouTube, and I, I watched the video on how to patch the drywall. And I thought, hey, I can do this. And I went over to Lowe's and I bought the stuff and I started cutting the wall out, and I put the mesh on the wall after putting another piece of drywall that I had to cut out in there, and I got the mesh on there, and then I put the drywall compound on there, and I, I let it dry, and I sanded it down, and I was like, this is going to look perfect and flat. 
I kid you not, it looked worse than after my dog got to it in the first place. It turns out that just like playing guitar and cooking a fine dining dish, doing house repair stuff also takes learning, applying, and repetition. Because I have seen dudes, some of you are in this room, that can throw up like slats of drywall in like a matter of minutes, and I'm so impressed because I can't even do a, a patch repair without it looking worse, like, like two dogs shoot it after the fact. So the thing is, when we are trying to learn something, it takes listening, it takes applying, and it takes repetition so that it becomes second nature to us. Now, how does this apply to the Sermon on the Mount? Well, it turns out that the example that Jesus uses in the parable that we're going to look at today shows us just that sequence. Listening, applying, and repetition. It's not so much that the story shows us that, it's what Jesus says before the story and the way that he tells the story that catches you off guard. You see, Jesus didn't get up and do this sermon so that his disciples or those in the crowd that wanted to hear him would come up to him afterward and say, hey, really good service, Jesus. Nice, nice going. And then walk home, and that was the end of it. Turns out Jesus had a plan. He had a plan for the words that he spoke to be heard, applied, and the application repeated so that the people would be forever changed. So that the people that they would become and the faith that they had would become indestructible. And so I want to I want us to sit in this story today. It's one that's pretty famous. You might have heard it before, but if you haven't, we're going to look at it together and, and talk about it. It's, it's in Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 27. Jesus says, Everybody who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise builder who built a house on bedrock. The rain fell, the floods came, and the wind blew and beat against that house. It didn't fall because it was firmly set on bedrock. But everybody who hears these words of mine and doesn't put them into practice will be like a fool who built a house on sand. The rain fell, the floods came. And the wind blew and beat against that house. It fell and was completely destroyed. So Jesus has just taught all of these challenging sayings. Has made all of these proclamations about the people listening to him. He said, you're the light of the world and the salt of the earth. You are blessed. You have heard it said, do not commit murder. But I tell you that 
Anybody who even has hate or anger in their heart towards someone else has already committed murder. I tell you, it's written, do not commit adultery. But any one of you that even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. He says things like, forgive and you will be forgiven. But do not forgive and God's forgiveness is not in you. You can go look it up. Matthew 5 through 7. Jesus teaches all of these things, proclaiming these things on people and issuing these high bar challenges to those listening. And his conclusion at the end of all of it is, everyone who hears these words, puts them into practice, is like a wise builder who built a house on bedrock. Now, we've already established, I told you, listen Practice and repeat till it becomes second nature. In order to be a wise builder, you have to have practiced in order to be able to build. Now, it's interesting. He tells these two stories. It's really two parables. One of them is a positive outcome parable, and the other one a negative outcome parable. But they're nearly identical in the verbiage that Jesus uses. In both cases, there is a builder. In both cases, there's a house to be built. In both cases, the rain fell, the floods came, and the wind blew. What makes the two different? Aside from Jesus calling one of them wise and the other a fool. What makes them different is the foundation that their houses were built on or lack thereof. The foundation. It ends up being a a key idea, by the way, in the Gospel of Matthew. In in Matthew 16, when Jesus has his disciples around and he asks the crowds who who they say he is, and they give their answers, he turns to his disciples and says, well, who do you say I am? And Simon, son of John, says, you are the Christ, the Messiah. And, and, and Jesus turns to Simon and says, yeah, now your name is going to be Rock. And upon this foundation, not on Peter, by the way, on the foundation that he is the Christ, the Messiah, I will build my church. On this foundation, on this rock. The wise builder builds his house on the foundation or the rock or the bedrock. The fool skips the foundation part altogether and just decides to plop the house on the sand. Now, I don't know if you've sat and thought about this story for a while, and, and so you, you, you look at the stories side by side, and you, you notice the similarities, and then you, you notice the differences of these, uh, these individuals that are uh, building these houses, and what makes them different, and what makes ultimately their outcome different. But notice their outcome is different, and yet the other parts of the story are the same. Both still experience the rain and the floodwaters and the wind, The challenges don't ease up for either of them, but the outcomes end up being different. 
because of where they chose to build the house. Both of them build a house. Its destruction, again, is not based on the quality of the house built, but upon the foundation that the house is sitting on. And remember, Jesus begins this set of parables by mentioning to his disciples that the reason for sharing these stories is to equate them to everybody hearing his words and putting them into practice. Which means if you hear his words and put them into practice, your outcome will be good. And if you don't put them into practice, it is the equivalent of putting a house on sand. And when the challenges and difficulties of life come, it'll get destroyed and washed away and be kaput. Now, there are things Jesus doesn't say in this story that are also important to consider when we line these two stories up. Jesus is focused on the outcome of what happens to the houses that are built. Just like he's focused on the outcome of the people that choose to put his words into practice or those that don't. He doesn't mention much about the process. Like, when you read this story, do you ever, do you ever think that uh, all of the rain and the floodwaters and wind hold up until the houses are done? Like, these guys are building in a perfectly sunny and nice conditioned day? Do you think they experienced any hard weather? Or maybe hardship in life? Maybe they are like me and they build something halfway and realize they put it together backwards and they have to take it apart and start over again. I don't know if that happened here. Do you think that they got any bumps, bruises, cuts along the way trying to build their house? Jesus says none of that. But it's implied by the mere notion of building something like this. And because Jesus is focused on the outcome, one of the difficult things about hearing these words of Jesus after hearing the long string of teaching that happens in the Sermon on the Mount is the fact that we face cuts, bumps, and bruises along the way. The weather doesn't always hold up. The work to get it right doesn't always go right along the way. And yet Jesus expects his listeners to take what he has said and put it into practice. And to do so on the daily so that it becomes a part of who they are. So that they achieve the outcome that the wise builder achieves. With a sturdy house on a firm foundation, unencumbered by the rain and flood and winds of life that inevitably hit us all. But Jesus doesn't guarantee that those things won't come in the process of building the house. There's also something else interesting here. Jesus is focused again on people hearing his word first before putting it into practice. 
This is what kind of makes us different than his initial hearers. Most of us have one of these. And if you don't, you might have one of these. And if you're a geek like me, you might have many of these on your shelf. And they got like things like CEB and NIV and NASB and NLT and I'm pretty sure there's the message remix out there. I'm not even sure what remix means in that case, but it exists. And again, if you don't have a bunch of these laying around, but you do have one of these, all of those and more are all on one app. Even though we live in a world where non-belief is on the rise, our ability to pull up what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, in any tone, any language, any translational choice that we want, is right there literally at our fingertips. So for most of us, the opportunity to hear His words is ever-present. And yet, because we don't always take advantage of those opportunities, we don't always hear Him. In the case of Jesus' original hearers, there was really no such thing as non-belief. All of Jesus' earliest followers were Jewish people. They were devoted to the one true God. And it is assumed in this story that Jesus' disciples and the crowds that formed around Jesus as he preached this sermon were all believers in that one God. So they may not have had quick access like we do, but their ears were inclined and attuned to what Jesus had to say. Hearing wasn't a problem. Comprehending might have been. And once you get beyond comprehension, you have to worry about practice. And that's another thing about these builders. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. Jesus doesn't say anything about their expertise. He doesn't say how good they are at building the house. Maybe, just maybe, the reason that the builder that was wise, that built on the bedrock, got it right is because he knew that it was important to put a house on a solid foundation. And maybe the other person didn't know. Or maybe the foolish builder was kind of like me, and they take the instructions and they say, Ah, I got it figured out. I don't need to worry about that. And they start getting going, and, and then they run into problems. Or if they don't run into problems, they end up with a bad build because the foundation's missing. Which, by the way, sorry, I'm asking all kinds of questions. Have you ever thought about this? Do you think that the foolish builder had a hard time or an easy time on the way to the build being complete? Let me give you an example. Let's say two children are building paper airplanes. The first one gets all sorts of paper cuts on their fingers. They're having to fold in a bunch of different directions. Maybe they have to redo some of their folds. And the plane that they make at the end of it doesn't look all that stealthy at the end. The second kid starts building a paper airplane, 
no paper cuts. They do it in three folds, and it looks like it's just going to soar. Which one flies? Well, because I'm the one telling the story, it's the first one. No pun intended, the first one didn't cut corners. They meticulously make sure that everything was folded the proper way. They were willing to admit their error and redo what needed to be done. They were willing to get their hands bloody in order to make that paper airplane just right so that it would fly. The other one just thought that they knew how to do it and put it together the way that they thought would look like it will fly fast. And then the moment they did it, it went straight into the ground. When Jesus tells this story that is simply two lines, one with the wise builder, one with the foolish builder, there is so much meaning packed into these stories. Because at the end of the day, Jesus has just told this whole sermon that he wants you to hear, put into practice, and do it daily so that it becomes a part of you, so that you are built on a firm foundation, so that when the difficulties of life come, you're not led to destruction. But in fact, your faith is indestructible. See, it's easy to listen to this story of these two builders and focus on the outcome And we might ask ourselves, well, I feel like I'm doing it the right way, but it's really hard to get to the right way, and should it be this hard? But Jesus never tells us about the plight of the builders on the way to their finished product. He's making a promise about an outcome, not the ease of the process. For the first builder, things might have been really challenging. They might have got bad weather, They might have had things go wrong in their family. They might have lost parts or had broken parts, but they stayed the course and they built it the right way and it was indestructible. Jesus also doesn't say that every step toward destruction for the foolish builder was a step in a quagmire. Might have been the kid with the three-step paper airplane. It might have been all sun and sunshine and ease on the way to building a house that was going to fall apart like that. See, the beauty of what Jesus teaches in this sermon and what he asks his hearers to do is not the promise that the process on the way to doing it will be easy. The promise is an indestructible faith that can't be wrecked by the calamities and challenges of this life because it's built on a solid foundation. We're going to see next week how Jesus' audience responds. It's only two verses. But we're going to see how they respond But it's important for us to stop before we consider how they respond to consider how we respond in light of what Jesus has said, the high bar that he's set, the challenges that he's laid before us, the high calling 
that He's laid upon us to be children of the Most High God. Adherence to His kingdom that Jesus is ushering in. And to live it out and to be light and salt to the world around us. There is no promise that the steps it takes will be easy. You'll build calluses along the way. You'll slice your finger when you're chopping the food. You might have to repeat again and again and again to be able to put that drywall up fast. But when you listen with attuned ears to what Jesus says, and day by day put it into practice by the power of the Spirit, it will become a part of who you are, and your life will be built on a foundation keeping it indestructible. That's the promise that Jesus makes at the end of preaching this audacious sermon. It's the calling he calls us to. And the question, like we will look at next week, is how we will respond. Will we, build the, will we be the wise builder? Or the foolish one. And we're called to that question literally every day we wake up. Let's pray. Dear Lord God, I thank you for this morning and I thank you for an opportunity to study your word, to uh, consider the, the, the challenges and the hope and the promise that Jesus issues not only to his first disciples, but to those of us who call ourselves followers of him. And God, I know that we, uh, I know that we hear uh, these stories and, and we, we come face to face with these, uh, these teachings and, and some come easier than others. But God, I pray that by the power of your spirit, you will will not only uh, convict us, but empower us to be able to come back to them each day, practicing them anew, and having our lives built by you on a strong foundation. So that no matter how challenging our life gets along the way, it will ultimately be indestructible. Pray these things in your Son, Jesus' name. Amen.